people that are here, um, that you've brought here this morning. God, I pray for open hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that your word would take root. And uh, Lord, whatever you would have, Lord, me to speak from your word today. Lord, would you, have, would you just have your way? Would you put me aside? Would you speak boldly through me? Um, and that, Lord, people would receive it uh, in the places and the areas of their life, Lord, where you seek and desire to convict them, to provoke them, to challenge them in terms of their walk with you. Lord, make us all uh, to be better followers of Jesus Christ. Help us to all take your word more seriously. Lord, help us to all become more mission-minded and recognize what is our place in your mighty work in this world. Lord, we want to have a hand at the plow. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us what that means. Uh, We love you, and we thank you for the testimony of Acts. And in so many ways, it's changed my life, and I know that it's changing the lives of the people in this ministry. Continue to do that Um, today in Acts chapter 6. We ask it in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, we've come a long ways in Acts so far, but the church is growing. Okay, the church is growing. Uh, Thousands upon thousands of people are getting saved uh, through the work of the apostles. Okay, and that's kind of where we're at. There's been some persecution. uh, There's been some hand slapping. There's been some imprisonment, some beatings. There's been a lot of prayer. uh, There's been uh, a lot of boldness in preaching the gospel, and we've been seeing God use it. Now, as the church begins to grow, uh, we're beginning to see some conflicts arise here in chapter 6. We see a conflict, right? And this is the first time we're seeing conflict in the church. And so we have a lot to learn from this situation because we all recognize that the church is imperfect, isn't it? The, The body of Christ is composed of imperfect people, flawed people, flawed yet forgiven people, yeah? And I want you to know that anytime people come together and gather for any purpose whatsoever, there's just going to be a lot of failure there, okay? There's just going to be a lot, whether it's a worldly community, you know, whether it's a, a club or an organization of some sort, um, there are going to be people they get in the middle of that thing, and they mess it up. They corrupt it. Okay? Just people just do that. By, by their very nature, by their sin nature, we just tend to mess things up. Our emotions get involved. We lose perspective. We lose focus. And we just tend to mess things up. Now, people get real upset at the church because, uh, you know, you hear this, uh, that the church is full of hypocrites. Well, yes it is. Because the church is comprised of flawed people And when flawed people come together, they tend to mess things up a little bit. Now the beauty of the church is that the Holy Spirit is in the midst of it. And the church actually has the capacity to overcome in light of their flaws, where other organizations and entities don't. We have the ability to lean more into Christ and to move forward in faith. So, it's important to note that no congregation of people is perfect. There are There are always areas of failure and weaknesses in every instance of people gathering. Even in a healthy church, there are bound to be problems or weaknesses. And you know, so much of our church today is made up, the contemporary church today is made up 
of people who are bouncing from church to church looking for the perfect church. And, and I hate to break it to those people, but you're not going to find it. You are not going to find a perfect church. And, and I hate to tell you, but there, there's nothing perfect about MBT. Maybe you were convinced that you had found the perfect church. And you've been really excited about that. But I'm telling you, we are not perfect. And there will be failures and there will be weaknesses. And so, so much more is that true in Kaya. Okay? Because I'm leading. And there will be failures, and there will be weaknesses. Your pastors are not perfect, and they never will be. MBT is a congregation of flawed yet forgiven people who are choosing to believe that God finds great value in using faithfulness. So the issue is faithfulness. The issue isn't weakness, and the issue isn't failure, and the issue isn't how flawed we are. That's not a problem to God. The issue is faithfulness. Will we be faithful? And so our very first key point, and the thing that we need to know before we get started today, is that a healthy church is first and foremost Bible-centered. We have a guide. We have a doctrine. We have a truth. And it's our responsibility to abide by what the Scripture tells us church should be. A lot of churches are guessing at what church should be. The Bible is not their final authority. And because of that, they will never be able to overcome and they will never amount to much as it concerns the mission. And so a healthy church is a Bible-centered church where leaders are focused on the mission. If we're Bible-centered, we're going to be mission-centered. That's just the case. We've got to have a kingdom agenda. So a healthy church is a Bible-centered church where leaders are focused on the mission. And listen, and they address weaknesses in faith, working towards maturity. That's what healthy churches do. We are, as a church, Midtown Baptist Temple, we're going to do things out of weakness. We are going to mess things up. We are not going to have perfect oversight. There are going to be times uh, as a member here, you're going to look around and you're going to say, well, we did that poorly. Okay, we executed that bad. And you are going to have critiques of what you see. And you are welcome to that. You are most likely going to be right. Okay, so I want to be up front and I want to admit to you that we're going to, we're going to fail you. And we are going to fail other people. And we, we just have to accept that. But we are going to move forward looking at our own weaknesses and failures and seeking God's help in improving in those areas. Okay, so as a, as a representative of Midtown Baptist Temple, I just want to make sure that you understand I am going to fail you. And this church is going to mess up. And I need you to nod at me and acknowledge that that's not going to mess you up. That is not going to mess you up. And we're going to talk about that today. So in today's story in Acts, we find the apostles working towards those very ends. We see an imperfect church working towards maturity in faith. 
making improvements where there is lack. So let's begin. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied. Pause. Okay? The church was multiplying. And what we need to understand is that when good things happen, new problems arise. New problems arise. When, when God is at work, there will always be new problems that come up that need to be addressed in faith. And so this is obviously a great thing. God is multiplying His church. He's doing exactly what He set out to do. And the congregation was increasing, and God was working in Jerusalem. And we've discussed this before, but growth doesn't come without growing pains, does it? You know, Shepherd is, my son is, is seven years old. And I remember when he was about five or six, uh, he hit a growth spurt. And I don't know if you guys remember this from your childhood, but, but it was one of those growth spurts. I don't really remember this. Maybe I grew incrementally, okay? But, but he went through a, a, a few-week period where he was just like in pain. He was just complaining about soreness all the time. And it was just difficult. Physical growth was difficult. His body was being stretched. And it was hard on his joints. And as a five- and six-year-old, he would complain about it. And this is exactly what the church goes through. When it grows, there are growing pains. The church in Jerusalem was growing by thousands. And it was becoming more and more difficult to manage what was happening day to day. It was being, becoming difficult for the apostles to have oversight of all of the changes and the growth that they saw. You know, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3 says, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In other words, there is a possibility that with growth, division can take place. There is always a danger in growth that men can consume it upon their lust and cause division in the congregation. You understand? That's always a danger. And we've discussed this in terms of Kaya and MBT before. We've, we've talked about this in, in just messages past, that as Kaya and MBT begin to grow, we need to make sure that we're continuing to prioritize the first things first. The doctrines that we hold to. The identity that we espouse as followers of Jesus Christ. That we remain in the will of God. In the vision of this church. And that we hold to those things that we identify with most because if we begin to let go of those things, that's where the potential for division begins to arise. So listen to me. With growth, there's potential for division because the right DNA will not, will not necessarily be properly disseminated. With growth happening, the right DNA might not properly be disseminated down to the new believer's and the believers that are coming into the fold. And so, there's potential for problem and there's potential for division at that point. Does that make sense? Some of you guys seem really sleepy. Is it weird, the, the room set up? Is it weird this morning? Does it throw you off a little bit? Some of you are, are very sp spatially gifted. Okay? And what that means is, when you come into an environment... 
that is cozy and comfortable and it begins to change, that, that it bothers you a little bit. Okay? Listen to me. This is the same book that it was last week. Okay? Hear from the book this morning. All right? We have no choice but to do this. This is a good problem. Okay? But with growth, there's potential for division. Because the right DNA will not always be properly disseminated. Okay, now here's the other point for potential problem. The church had grown more eclectic. Read again in verse 1. And in those days when the numbers of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. In other words, we've got two types of people that are part of this church. The church had not only grown in numbers, but they were growing more diverse in their congregants. There would have been many Greeks that were traveling back and forth to Jerusalem during this time period, and they would have had exposure to the apostles' message. And some of them would have accepted Jesus Christ. There were also uh, proselytes. In other words, there were Greeks that had converted to Judaism. And they would have been there during the, these feast days when, uh, if you know the narrative here, uh, what's happening is the apostles begin preaching uh, during these feast days, and there are, this is where God begins working, and thousands of people are starting to come to Christ. And so there would have been Greek converts to Judaism there to worship in the temple who would have heard the message, and they, some of them would have been saved. And so what we have here is we have Greeks and Hebrews who were accepting the message of Christ, and it was beginning to diversify the congregation. Now listen to me. With diversity comes the potential for division because of bigotry and cultural bias. Right? We know that. We know that very well in America. The diversity, the difference. When, people, when there's differences between people, there's things that they don't understand about other people, other cultures. They tend to retreat to a place Okay, in their thinking, in their lack of understanding, called hatred. That's what they do. That's what all of us do. That when we don't understand something, we tend to fear it. And we create arbitrary and false boundaries. And there's a potential for that in the church. I mean, do we not see it in the divided nature of the American church today? It is ridiculous to me, and we've talked about this before as well, it is ridiculous to me that there are churches in our city, in the, in the heart of the, the center, in an urban center, that are primarily either black or white. That is not God's heart. God's heart is the church, that the church would be diverse and it would look like the communities that it seeks to minister to. And so Midtown Baptist Temple should be a heart, and should have a heart to reach Young and old, white, black, Hispanic, every ethnos that comes in and enters into this city, we should have a heart to reach them and that we would strive to not see cultural or ethnic boundaries, but that we would see things the way God sees them. This is the motivation for Paul writing Romans, is it not? Do you remember that, when we studied Romans? 
It is God's heart that every person worship Him and that we would come to like-mindedness over His Word regardless of our ethnic or, or cultural differences. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen, huh? Praise God for that. But we recognize here in Acts chapter 6 that the exponential growth and the diversity of the church raises potential problem. Yep. So let's see how that begins to manifest itself. Let's look at the people's problem. And when we look at this, I want to I point this out. We're going to look at it and we're going to address it three different ways. Okay? We're going to look at the people's murmuring. We're going to look at their, the perceived mismanagement of the church. And then we're going to look at the purpose of the minister. Okay? The purpose and the priority of the minister. So let's look at what they have to say. So there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So let's back up for a second. Remember that there were, be, there were, there were alms being taken, right? That people were giving to the church. They were selling off their possessions. And that they were giving these, this, this money to the apostles to, to manage and to give out uh, to members of the church where there was need. Correct? And so the point uh, here uh, is that the Grecians believed that the Hebrews were getting better treatment than they were as these monies were being given out. Does that make sense? And you could see, if that was true, how that is problematic. Right? That, that's, that's problematic. Now before we get to the problem itself, let's talk about the people's murmuring. Because that, that is a big issue. This is something that we need to pause and address. The murmuring itself was about their perception of how the ministry was being run. Okay? You can see where this is going. <laughs> now the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not their concerns were justifiable. And I think that, that God is doing that on purpose. He doesn't tell us whether or not their perspective or their perceptions was justifiable or not. So perhaps, perhaps the apostles were wrong. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Perhaps the congregants were wrong. Perhaps their perceptions were completely groundless. Perhaps their personal subjectivity got in the way of their reality, which is very common in church. There are lots of times as a member of this church, that my perceptions of what's going on and my reality are different from what's actually taking place. There's a lot of times that we have a tendency to see things from far off and make judgments. We see the leadership making decisions about different things. And we, we, in, our, in the back of our mind, we begin questioning and I'm telling you, that's a dangerous road. We're going to address that in a second. Now, now, perhaps, though, perhaps the congregants, the members of the church, were right. 
that in the midst of the growth of the church, some of the funds were incidentally given to more Jews than they were to the Greeks. Maybe that was happening. Certainly this would not have been the apostles' intent, though, as they were not prone to respecting the nationality of a person. Are you hanging with me? Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter gives us some insight into the way God thinks, and in so doing, tells us what his heart is. Listen to what he says. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Peter's heart was God's heart. Peter's heart was God's heart. I will not be a respecter of persons. And so if money was incidentally being distributed to the Hebrews more than to the Greeks, then that would have been out of sheer accident, unintended. Does this make sense? Either way, whether right or wrong, the issue here is that the murmuring is not justifiable. We do not have the right to murmur against our leadership. In Exodus uh, chapter 16, we find that Moses and Aaron have led the nation of Israel out of slavery. That's a big deal, isn't it? Only to lead the people out into the, to the wilderness where they begin to complain about food as though God would leave them out of slavery only to starve to death. Okay? Bad logic. Bad logic. So they're hungry. And they're, listen to me, their, their response... The fleshly man, the natural response, was to focus on what they didn't have rather than what they did have, which is the problem always when people are murmuring. Selfish thinking is the source of all murmuring. Do you understand? So listen. It's important to always assume the best about your leadership. Your natural inclination should not be evil thoughts of your leaders. If that's true, there, there's only one of two problems. A, you've got a selfish heart. Or B, you go to a selfish church and you should go somewhere else. That's it. Either you're in the wrong place or you've got the wrong heart. But selfish thinking is the source of murmuring. And we must be very careful about murmuring against our leadership. You know, I remember a story in Exodus where, where people weren't very happy with Moses' leadership. Right? Aaron and, and Miriam were upset at how Moses had been leading. They were disappointed in some decisions he made. And I don't know if you remember the story very well, but it didn't go well for them. God doesn't respond real well to people questioning the leadership that he establishes. And if there is an issue of doctrine or stewardship, then it's your responsibility to speak with the leadership rather than speak or band about in your peer-to-peer -peer conversations how you disagree. You don't get to do that. 
if you've got a problem, then you need to address it with your pastors. So key point number two, listen to me. Christians must be critical of their imaginations. That's first and foremost. I don't know, have you ever looked at the word imagination in Scripture? Have you ever studied that out? I'm pretty confident. It's been a while since I've studied it. I don't think a single instance of the word imagination in the entire Scripture is positive. If I remember correctly from my studies, that every time the word imagination or imagined shows up, it's always bad. So I'm asking you to check your imaginations at the door. Be careful of your imaginations because they run away from you and they get unruly, don't they? We can Im imagine a vain thing. So Christians must be critical of the things that they perceive in their mind. We've got to start by looking at the way we're thinking first. That's where we must start. Then we also need to promote a heart of submission towards our leadership. Because if you're not going to them with the heart of leadership, then you're always going to communicate vain things. You're going to always end up murmuring. You're going to always end up challenging authority, and you're never going to get to a place where God can use you. God doesn't use belligerent people. He doesn't. He does not use belligerent people. He, he, he uses servant-minded, submitted, humble-hearted, foolish people. That's who he uses. And so we need to promote a heart of submission. And then lastly, we need to guard against a murmuring mouth. Guard against it. Protect against it. Study James sometime. And see how James addresses the mouth and the tongue. It is an unruly thing. And if we let it get ahead of us or out of our control, we will end up hurting and harming what God is doing in our lives and lives of people around us. We've got to be careful. So listen to me. Here's my instruction to you. I remember when, okay, first of all, let me be honest with you. When I was young, I was, I don't know if you know this about me, but art school made me a critical thinker. Okay? Almost every day in class, in art school, you, you, you do something called critique. And you practice literally dismantling ideas to come up with better ones. And it made me, from a young age, fairly critical. So when I was young, I had a tendency. Eric, don't laugh. Eric was there. To be overly critical. Now here's my protection. As stupid as I was, my protection was that I always brought my concerns to Sam directly. And he usually convinced me that I was wrong. I want to point that out. And I'm still wrong sometimes. But the point is, we need to not let our perceptions become murmurs. Let your perceptions become face-to-face -face conversations with pastors. Please. Please do that. Take your concerns up the chain of command. Do that. That's good practice. Okay, that's my bit on murmuring. Did I cover that okay? Now, let's address their perceived mismanagement. 
Because remember, we don't know if they were justified or not. So listen to me. Whether the Greeks were right or wrong in their assessment, the perception was that the funds were unfairly distributed. Now listen, you've heard this before. Listen, their perception was their reality. That is the weakness of every person. Our perceptions are always our reality, for right or for wrong. You understand? What we conceive in our minds tends to be our truth. That's dangerous, but it is what it is. And this is why we must be Berean in almost every area of our lives. But listen to that, to see how the apostles respond to this is amazing. It's amazing. I learned so much from this. Listen, rather than choosing to clap back, okay, at the murmuring, they don't even address it. The apostles decide to address their perceptions by creating a biblical solution that's transparent and accountable. So rather than addressing whether their perceptions are right or wrong and defending themselves, which they maybe could have done, what they do is they address the perceptions of the flock. And they say to themselves, how can we improve our ministry so that these perceptions no longer exist? How do we create a solution that works and works that the the flock might be strengthened rather than weakened? That's beautiful leadership. See, the apostles knew that even if their financial distribution was above reproach, that the best thing to do was for them to assess the areas of ministry weakness and address them. What the apostles chose to focus on was developing a ministry that was Full proof. You guys familiar with that phrase? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 says, Paul's speaking to Timothy, a pastor, and he says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. In other words, for the apostles, this was a sign of great maturity. Even, even if the murmuring of the flock was false, even if it was weak, they determined that they would use it as an opportunity to strengthen the work so that it was blameless before the congregants. That's great leadership. So, key point number three. A good leader is always critical of their own ministry, so others don't have to be. As as Sam would say, growing leaders pay attention. Right? You want to be a good leader? Then you need to choose to be critical of your own ministry so that other people don't have to be. Judge it. Weigh it. Assess it. Analyze it. Consider the weaknesses. Fix them in faith and move forward knowing that you're going to fail again. That you will be weak. You will mess up. And then you'll fix that problem as well. You understand? This is called sanctification. This is called sanctification. We must do it in our personal lives. And we must do it in our ministry. Let's continue on. Let's look at the purpose of the minister. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should, ha- should leave the word of God and serve tables. So let's, let's talk here briefly. 
What was the purpose of the apostles? I mean, we've looked at the charge, haven't we? What was their primary responsibility? To go, to go and preach to the lost and see them saved. Their primary responsibility was the ministry of the Word of God. To study it, to know it, to preach it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was their primary responsibility. And I would like to, to note that that is the primary responsibility of the teaching pastor. My primary responsibility to you is to lead you through teaching. That is the responsibility. Listen to the requirements of a pastor described by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A, bu- a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. We'll stop there. You can study the rest of it on your own in your free time. Apt to teach. What does that mean? Apt to teach means predisposed and prepared to teach. A pastor's responsibility is to be predisposed to teaching. I want to teach all the time. I can't help it. I apologize. Sometimes it's unwarranted or unwanted. I apologize. It is my tendency to teach. Okay? I'm predisposed to it. And listen, I'm prepared to do it. And the pastor has to be that. He has to be apt to teach because it's his primary responsibility in ministry. And one of the most difficult aspects of being a pastor is the need to both manage the responsibilities to God's people in counseling, in conversation, in love, in delegation, as well as prioritize time of prayer and study with the intent to preach and counsel. It's hard to balance, y'all. Like, if, if I could be real honest with you, I don't talk about this a whole lot, but it's real hard to have a full-time job teaching art all day and then have a full-time job in the evenings pastoring you. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult. And I'm only here, and, and Pastor Jeff knows this, I'm only here by the grace of God and His and his eyes and his hand in grace upon me, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it is very difficult for me to find the time necessary to study and to manage all of the responsibilities that it takes to lead. It's difficult. And many times the administrative responsibilities impose themselves upon my times of prayer and preparation. You understand that? I'm confessing my weakness to you. Many times, the other responsibilities, the administrative responsibilities, they impose themselves and keep me from praying the way I ought and preparing the way I ought. This is my weakness. Okay? And it is likely the weakness of every one of your pastors and leaders. Do you understand? Listen to the apostles' response to the dilemma, though. They say, it is, not, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
You understand? They recognized that there needed to be a priority set. And this is not a slam against servanthood. We like to read this. We, 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 I, for some reason, we have a tendency to read this verse like this. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables like the peasants do. We like to read this that way. This is not what's happening here. This is not a slam on servanthood. This is the acknowledgement that their God gave them responsibilities to execute. And it is their responsibility to prioritize those things first. So key point number four. A good pastor, and that ain't me, first of all. I just want you to know that. I try. But a good pastor knows their primary responsibilities and prioritizes them accordingly. Even knows this is very hard for me to do. Right? If anybody can attest to this, it's her. It's very easy to neglect things. It's very easy to misprioritize when you have a lot going on. But a good pastor knows that their prim- primary responsibility is to pray, prepare, and to preach. That's their job. And everything needs to, to work to supporting that. The way I, I live with my family has to prioritize those things in such a way that nothing is lost in my relationship with my wife or my children. Nothing is lost in my relationship with you. But God has given me a call. So, what was the solution to this weakness in ministry? What was the solution? Okay, big surprise. The solution was, we need more leaders. There is always a need for more faithful leaders. Our ministry needs it. It is crucial that we be about developing leaders to step up and to lighten the load of the work. See, the apostles established the leadership position here that would be later known as the deacon. This is where they create deaconship, meaning the word deacon means to minister. It's a role that supports the ministry in service. Now listen to me, they took a cue from Scripture. I don't know if you knew that. The apostles tended to do that. Okay? But they took a cue from Scripture. In Exodus chapter 18, we're not going to go there, we're not going to look at it. But Jethro is coming, the father-in-law of Moses, comes to talk to him about how Moses is doing too much. You're doing too, you're doing too much, bro. The ministry is going to kill you. You can't meet with so many people. It's going to wear you out. It's going to wear you thin. And you are not going to be the leader that you're supposed to do. So let me, let me tell you what, what God wants you to do. God wants you to establish leaders that can support the flock. And they can step in the gap. And they can help you. And they can help you with the administrative tasks so that you can be a better leader. And so Moses does that, and it works. And so the apostles take a cue from that, and it works. Now listen to me. This is why Kaya has Bible studies. And if you're not an active member of a Bible study, 
then you're missing out. You're mi missing out on the leadership development that comes with that. You're missing out in the, the personal connections that you can make with other people and accountability around God's Word. You're missing the opportunity to have your own personal counselor in your Bible study leader. Someone that you can go to with invulnerability and softness of heart, presenting your problems so that they can minister to you God's Word. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but oftentimes on Sundays and on Tuesday nights, there is a line. And I cannot meet with every person. And guess what? I want to. If it was up to me, like Moses, I would try to meet with every single one of you. I just can't do it. On Tuesday nights, I am here till 11 o'clock regularly meeting with people full of love and joy, worn as thin as I can be. And as much as I love to do it, most of you guys have been at Winsteads for two hours at that point. Most of you have left, enjoyed each other's company, and you are already in your bed by the time I leave on a Tuesday night. This is not a chastisement. This is just the reality. This is why we have Bible studies, is to meet the needs of the flock at a micro level. What do you think, Jeff? How am I doing over here? It's good to have Jeff here. Jeff probably hasn't heard me preach in like two years, three years maybe, I don't know. So listen to me. This is why our church has D1. This is why our church has D2. This is why our church has a, its own Bible institute. It's to develop leadership to meet the needs. To meet the needs in this flock, to meet the needs in the world. Do you understand? Leaders over leaders over leaders is a biblical model. And that is what we are doing. And this is why our church has ministry fellowships. And this is why our church has deacons. You understand? So, how do they go about beginning the process of determining who will it be? Who will meet this need? Am I boring you yet? How am I doing? Okay. Is it making sense? The business of ministry. So how do they begin the process of establishing who the leaders are going to be and how they're going to meet the need? They start by getting input from those they respect. Okay, verse 2 says that, that the twelve called the multitude of the disciples. Okay, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a group of disciples, the 70. Uh, Jesus commissions them in Luke chapter 10. We see them in moments throughout Acts, okay? But, but they're likely calling together the multitude of disciples that Jesus gathered in Luke chapter 10, the 70 disciples. And this is what they, they ask of them. In verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. So as a team of apostles with a very specific agenda, it was of the utmost importance for them to consult their leadership. These were trusted men and worthy of consultation. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. 
Would you agree? You know, Sam often consults his other pastors. Okay? I am probably not that worthy of consultation. But he chooses to do it. And he will often say something when he's doing this. He'll often say something when he's trying to make a big decision. He'll say to me or to Jeff or to the other pastors, he'll say, I want to know if this decision gives you heartburn. You've heard him say that, haven't you, Eric? Because he doesn't want to make a decision that he doesn't believe the other pastors will support. Now, now, now listen to me. Biblical leadership is not a consensus. That ain't how it works in Scripture. The man of God gets to make the decision. That's how it works in the Bible. Biblical leadership is not a consensus. It is not a democracy. We like to make the church democratic because, well, we live in a democratic republic and we think even our church should be modeled after our government. Well, guess what? We don't have it figured out. Jesus has it figured out. And the church is not a democracy. Sam Miles is our pastor, and listen to me. If you can't submit to him, then you need to find a church where you can submit to that pastor. But listen to me. A biblical leadership is always accountable. They're accountable for their decisions. This is why Sam is transparent. So key point number five. Good leaders always seek counsel on big decisions. Growing leaders, pay attention. When you're making a big decision, you want your leaders to be on board and to have input. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. And when you come to them, you should say things like, I want to know if this decision I'm making or plan on making gives you heartburn. And if it does, let us reconsider together. Let us together reconsider. Now moving along. Being responsible for the welfare of the congregation meant observing and judging the needs, managing people and service projects and handling money. Hey, you guys know Judas. You familiar with Judas? Judas handled money. <sighs> Judas was an antichrist. We don't want antichrists handling the money. We would agree. So, for the apostles, there was a prerequisite on the position. It had, to be, it had to be a team of proven men. Key point number six. A good leader. The future leader. The leaders coming up in ministry. Have to be proven in their character and proven in their ability before they are appointed to any position. Sam has a philosophy in our ministry that he doesn't appoint anyone to anything until he has to. Until it absolutely demands it. Right? Until the situation demands that he appoint someone. And guess what? When it comes time to appoint the man of God or the woman of God over that ministry, it is always a person whose character is proven. It's not willy-nilly like some of these other churches do. Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to do that. But i got to put you on blast other churches. Other churches appoint leaders 
as though they're looking for a salesman or they're lo- like, like they're, they're looking in the help wanted pages. So-and-so graduated from such-and-such seminary. He was a youth pastor for three years at some other church that I have no, no idea anything about them, but he seemed to do well. Let's bring him in and interview him for this position. Well, listen, y'all, that ain't how we do it here. That ain't how we do it. We appoint men and women of God to positions of authority in this ministry because they are proven, proven in their character. We watch them, not for days, not for weeks, not for months, for years. We want to know their flaws, we want to know their weaknesses, we want to know their character, and we want to know their gifting. And it's important that you know that. It's important that you know that because we're not just going to hand over the keys. We're going to do it the way the apostles did it. Proven men. So, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. They needed a respected testimony among the people, known for high character. They needed to be yielded as a lifestyle of submission to God and have a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They needed to be wise in their decision-making, righteous in their decision-making, of a biblical will, able to accomplish the objectives set before them. That's the testimony they needed to have. The prerequisites of the deacon are expanded for you in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. We will not go there because I have to close. So let's look at verse 3 again. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The decision to appoint deacons gives them the capacity to reprioritize. With men committed to the office of deacon, then the day-to-day business of the church could get done in an orderly and accountable way. For many people, it's hard for them to consider that the church is also a business. I remember when I was young, hating the idea that the church was a business, despising it. When I thought of the church and the pastors uh, doing their work day to day, it looked like fasting and praying in the sanctuary. You know, it's midday. And Sam and all the other pastors are laid out, you know, prostrate on the ground before the Lord. And that's what day-to-day business in the church looked like. Well, I was wrong. There's a lot of work that needs to get done that's administrative in nature. And the church, at some level, is a spiritual business, and it should function under different guidelines than a business. But there is business to get done, bills to be paid, checks to be written, cleanliness that needs to be taken care of, delegation of responsibilities so that the gospel might be furthered. So the office of deacon is intended to support the day-to-day working of the church, attending to the needs of the people so so that nothing gets neglected and so that the pastors can focus on praying and preparing and preaching. That's, what, that's what sh- the way things should work. And so here's my question to you. Are you a deacon? Are you a deacon? Now, some of you have the office of deacon. Uh, I think Brian Bustos is a deacon. Brent, 
Is Brent as a deacon, correct? No. In my heart he is. He refuses. He's like, I will not, I will not taint the work of the Lord by taking that office. No. Uh, Blake's a deacon. Blake's a deacon. And so we have the office of deacon and we use it. But listen to me. The, if you want to know, if you want to know the truth, in Sam's heart and mind, everybody's a freaking deacon. And so the question is, are you a deacon in function, in character, and in practice? If you are not, I'm calling you to that. I'm calling you to the character and the lifestyle of deaconship. Are you a deacon? Are you a deaconess? Not in office, but in action. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now listen, I, had, I did a word study on all these guys. I checked them out. The only thing I want to tell you that's super interesting about these guys is, listen, there is only one Jew as far as I can tell, only one of these men is a traditional Jew, by birthright and by religion. Nicholas was a Jew, then became a Christian. He was a Greek that became a Jew and then became a Christian. The rest of the men, as far as I can tell, are Greeks. Now why is that important? We have a team of all Jewish apostles, supported by a team of almost all Greek deacons. I think, the, I think God is a very, very clever man. I think that he respects and loves diversity and wants a diverse voice in leadership. He wants that. And the office of deaconship in this matter diversified the voice. And that was good. And in verse 5 it says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And in verse 6 it says, and I won't get into this, if you want to take down the verses, they're up here. They prayed. That's what they do. They pray. They pray over them, they lay their hands, and they ordain. If you ever wondered about ordination, look up those verses. Ordination is a very important thing. I never understood it until I got closer to my ordination. I began researching it and studying it. It's a very important thing in Scripture. You should study it out. Here's the conclusion, verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. It worked. It worked. Developing leaders works. It works. And that is what we will do. And as we close, okay, Jeff, I don't know if you want to do a, a song of worship as we close, but listen. As we close, I want you to ask yourself, this is the hard question. Listen to me. The hard question is, are you functioning in life with the character and the lifestyle of a deacon. How are you serving to lighten the load? How are you meeting the needs of this church? How are you helping step in the gap for your pastors? How are you, how are you using your gifts in such a way that makes the ministry function so that the church can be multiplied? Yes, it is a business, but it is a spiritual one. 
and you have a work to do. You are as much a part of this as Sam Miles. You are as much a part of this as any pastor and deacon in this church. But you have to choose to, to be something greater than you are now in faith. Moving forward. Moving forward. Desiring to grow. Do you understand? And if you know you have a decision to make, okay, something to, to give up, something to relent, this is the time to do that. And we'll have people up here ready to pray with you. Let's close. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to present us with strategies for our problems. You give us insight, biblical insight in what to do. And we can see that, Lord, you're, you're in the business of developing leaders and giving them oversight. Lord, that we might all grow and that your church might multiply and, and grow in all the earth, that your kingdom would expand itself, Lord, that, that men and women all over this world would be saved and discipled. The churches would be planted. And that your name would become famous in all the world. And so even the minute business of serving tables and ministering to the widows and the orphans, the oft-neglected work of personal sacrifice the giving of alms, the simple things, even those things serve to make your name famous in all the earth. And Lord, we respect that and honor it and ask, Lord, teach us to model ourselves after what we see in your word that we might do the work in righteousness of a pure heart, blameless and transparent before one another and before Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.